Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at Akev. We are uh, at the uh, longest one of Moshe's speeches to the people. Um, we have five discourses from Moshe. This is the, the longest one. Um, it, it is a hard parsha to begin, um, so we're gonna we're gonna move through um, the harder part, and then I'm hoping to bring a little bit. You, some of you uh, may know that I just returned from camp, um, and so I'm hoping to bring you a little bit of camp uh, from our Torah portion. So we'll begin at verse 12. Somebody read, please. And if you do obey these rules and observe them carefully, look, the Lord your God will maintain faithfully for you the covenant that he made on oath with your fathers. He will favor you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the issue of your womb and the produce of your soul, your new grain and wine and oil, the calving of your herd and the lambing of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to assign to you. You shall be blessed above all other peoples. There shall be no sterile male or female among you or among your livestock. The Lord will ward off from you all sickness. He will not bring upon you any of the dreadful diseases of Egypt about which you know, but will inflict them upon all your enemies. You shall destroy all the peoples that the Lord your God delivers to you, showing them no pity, and you shall not worship their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Should you say to yourselves, these nations are more numerous than we, how can we dispossess them? You need have no fear of them. You have but to bear in mind what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, the wondrous acts that you saw with your own eyes, the signs and portents, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God liberated you. Thus will the Lord your God do to all the peoples you now fear. The Lord your God will also send a plague against them until those who are left in hiding perish before you. Do not stand in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. All right, why don't you continue through this whole part? The Lord your God will dislodge these peoples before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them at once, else the wild beasts would multiply to your hurt. The Lord your God will deliver them up to you, throwing them into utter panic until they are wiped out. He will deliver their kings into your hand, and you shall obliterate their name from under the heavens. No man shall stand up to you until you have wiped them out. Finish it off. You shall consign the images of their gods to the fire. You shall not covet the silver and gold on them and keep it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared thereby. For that is abhorrent to the Lord your God. You must not bring an abhorrent thing into your house or you will be proscribed like it. You must reject it as abominable and abhorrent for it is proscribed. Okay. So this is obviously for us distressing (laughs) um, to read. Um, Remember that Deuteronomy is written long after other texts of Torah. Why was Deuteronomy written? Do we remember? What was the prompt for the writing of Deuteronomy? I don't remember. It, they needed a fifth book? Because the Torah has five books and there were only four. The summation of everything. Yeah. 
Deuteronomy was written as a religious reform. This was a religious reform, and they found the scroll of Deuteronomy. And when they found it, when they were renovating the synagogue, the t- you know, let's say, right? Of course, it was the temple. But when they were renovating the shul, they found a really old scroll. And so they took it for authentication, right? If you find a relic, if you find a something in the ground in Israel, you're, where are you going to take it? To the Department of Antiquities. And you're going to have it authenticated, right, as, how, as to how old it is. So they took the scroll of Deuteronomy to Hulda, the prophetess, and she authenticated it as truly one of the lost scrolls. Um, and so it belonged with the rest of them, um, and so they now had this fifth. I think we need to mention for the people listening to the podcast that every time you said found, you made a quote with your air, pants. Air quotes, I, correct. <laughs> air I did quotes. air quotes around the word found, found the scroll um, because, because what we know from many different um, ways of analyzing the text is that it was written at the time it was found. So if you want to make something have weight that you want to put to the American people right now, you might say we found some early writings of George Washington on his theories of economic blah, 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 right, to bring to bear on the economic times that we're experiencing. It gives it more weight. It gives it more um, potential for actually being... um, listened to or adhered to canonized canonized it became certainly Um, it is a religious reform set in the mouth of Moshe at the time just before the air quotes invasion (laughs) right so why do I do air quotes around invasion he's talking about getting ready to invade the land because we don't think it ever happened (laughs) because we don't think it ever happened. We're fairly like that. we're fairly certain, actually, it never happened. I just finished while I was in Israel reading another book, uh, a very interesting book about called the Original Torah, um, and very uh, new and very insightful um, proof that that this is a late text, a, and it could be a very late text. How late? That's that's the scholarly. Um, debate and discussion, um, but uh, as late as some of the later prophets. And um, can you take a m- <laughs> what? It's not late enough for me. Are you right. <laughs> so the the reason I keep stressing how late it's written and how far away from these events is because this was never actualized. It was never realized. It's not history. It wasn't meant to be history. Does that make sense? No one studied this text to learn history. They studied this text, this found scroll, as a way of the leadership of the time trying to um, reorganize the people around certain ethics, values, morals, practices. So one of the things that Deuteronomy emphasizes is true monotheism. No other gods, no other relationship to any other god at all is permitted. 
uh, and it will lead to horrible, horrible things. So if, if that's what's written a lot in Deuteronomy as part of the religious reform, what's happening? They're worshiping other gods. There's syncretistic worship happening in ancient Israel. They are worshiping Yudhevavhei, and we have found inscriptions in Kuntilat Adrud in the south of the desert. Um, we have found inscriptions to Yudhevavhei and his consort Asherah. So there was clearly syncretistic worship happening. They were, in fact, loyal to Yudhevavhei and were worshiping Yudhevavhei's consort Asherah. Isis, Astarte, right? The, fe- the feminine divine in the ancient Near East. So, so we know that, that those people were never wiped out because we continue to have the prophets complaining and fetching and yelling about the people being led astray by those other pagan you know, idol worshipers. So clearly this never happened. Um, but we also know that most... Um, most early Israelites were, were converted Canaanites. There's absolutely, this book I was reading in Israel said there was, there's no material cultural change in the archaeological record from Canaanite to Israelite. Do you understand what that means? Nothing. That means no outside invading culture came into the land and had their pottery and their designs and their way of weaving and that, right? There's no change in the archaeological record about culture. Therefore, there was no invasion from the outside. So, so that's one way I can hold this. It's still uncomfortable, but I can hold it knowing it's like some kind of fantasy looking back saying, y'all should have done what you were supposed to, which is remove all of the negative influences that have got y'all in so much trouble right now. Had you done this, you wouldn't be in the mess you're in. What makes you most uncomfortable about this? Wipe them out to a person. Or that. Women, children, wipe them out. Leave nothing left alive. It's just like uh, you know, and this is you know what Rabbi Rubin preached. You know, at one high holiday sermon not so long ago that you know reading a text like this, you might think it comes from another tradition, right? People who want to look at the Quran and make all kinds of you know sweeping statements uh, skip right over this section of Deuteronomy. Sarah, um, this sounds to me like a sales pitch. <laughs> yes, our God can do all these wonderful. Things and uh, you know if you stay loyal to our God, and it sounds like anyone living in the 20th century could not believe it, because we know the limits of what our God concept is, and how uh, our God could not save our people. So it's kind of tough to read mm-hmm. for that reason. So, so what I can do as a reconstructionist is say, when we live in right relationship to the power, capital P, Kaplan's God is the power that makes for transformation, capital P, capital T, the power that makes for liberation, capital P, capital L, right? When we live in line with the force in this universe that makes for transformation, liberation, justice, equity, loyalty, Commitment, responsibility, 
we, humanity, can save ourselves. That, that is a Reconstructionist reading of this, that it is, in fact, God who will save us. The Reconstructionist interpretation is because when we draw on that force that we call God and live our lives in line with that, we experience salvation. And salvation for Kaplan was every human being being able to reach their full potential. Right? That that is salvific. Um, what, we just don't do that. Right? We, we don't live our lives in line with what, it would, what this force in the universe for justice, equity, compassion, liberation, transformation would call from us is not what we generally do. And that's our problem. Right? Um, so... One of the things... when I try and make some sense out of this Mm -hmm. is that there are consequences to what we do and I think that kind of runs through all this That what you're saying that there are consequences it's not just might makes right and that if you do the right stuff good stuff will happen and if you do the wrong stuff bad will happen except we don't always observe it that way in life, because righteous people, you know, children get cancer, and right. righteous people have terrible things happen to them, and evil people sometimes don't. Right. So that's when we go back to consequences for what, right? So for poisoning our streams and poisoning the air, yes, cancer is a consequence of that behavior. Some cancer is normal to organic human life this go-round. That's just how it is, and it, it, there is no... You know, it's not a consequence of anything other than existing as creatures. Is this written in the singular or the plural? I mean, when is is he exhorting <coughs> the people, the society, mm-hmm. and saying these are societal punishments and consequences, or is this kind of directed to individuals? And God will, you know, will guard. In response to you, singular, the covenant. Right? Um, so they're kind of intermixed? So, singular right. Singular and plural? So this, this idea that we, we, there is individual responsibility is very clear. Right? Then it says in verse 14, Baruch mikol ha'amim. Blessed will you be above all nations. Plural. Collective. Right? You know, so there's, it moves back and forth. Ve'achalta et kol ha'amim. And you... Unity as a people, singular, mm-hmm. will you know um, devour all of the other people. So it you know it moves from singular individual to singular people. You know that's kind of a collective. To then um, there is some plural language as well. But it seems it mostly grow, basically growing up in a Christian country where there's so much emphasis on individual salvation. I think our society tends to think of consequences as always being individual Correct. and not so much as if you as a society do this. Torah does not understand consequences in general to be individual. Usually ever, I would say. Right? Consequences are communal and multi-generational. Something I do might impact my great-great-grandchildren. It is never seen generally as as singular. Emma. What I was going to say, when I'm reading this, it sounds to me, from what you were saying, how there, this was a time in which people were worshipping other than Adonai. 
And that to me seems, when I read this, it seems coming from fear. And I think that a lot of times this, is, this can be seen as a record of someone speaking out of fear of these things that may happen. And I like what you said about it being more as a guide for morals and a way to live rather than an actual history and fact. Because thinking about it in terms of fear, people say things and uh, express things that they may not say if they were not living through fear. And so that makes it an easier read for me to know that maybe this isn't exactly what was happening, but this was a fearful moment that they were expressing what could happen. So the leadership of the time who wrote this, for sure, felt fear about what was happening. The moral decay, you know, the what they saw as a a real leaving of the path of serving Yodhevavhe. Um, whether we would agree or not with their reform, they clearly, yes, are speaking. And what I hear you saying is that there's an intensity, there's a way of speaking when we speak out of fear, um, that if we were in another rational, hopeful, you know, different kind of time, we might not. And this definitely, yes, I think has that very you know, edgy um, flavor. Really. You talk about uh, a period of religious reform and... Uh, when you talk about uh, the uh, uh, the leadership of the time, you must have some clue as to what period we're talking about. Yeah, the scholars put it around the time of King Josiah. Uh, uh, was it still one nation or, or two at that time? Uh, so I'm trying to figure out where exactly in the about 375 or was it earlier than that? Mm-mm. Seven, I want to say it's the 700s. Well, right, it had to be before the destruction of the first time. Before the uh, right. Babylonian right. Uh, return, return from Well, so there's real arguments about, about it. There's real scholarly debate about how late this text, it, how early or how late it is. So some say Josiah, some say it is, it is after the exile. It is long after the exile. Well, we know that when they... When they came back, or those that did come back, there was a tremendous reform for one, no matter how you look at it. Right. So you think that's about the time that... It, it, is, it is clear that it is, it is at a time when there has been an experience of distance from the divine which is why most people put it post-exilic. They're very clear this is post the experience of exile. And, um, and that, that Deut- in Deuteronomy, God recedes to God's heaven. You know, that we see God a little more personally in, in the other books. And then when we get to Deuteronomy, God becomes a much more abstract, distant power that's kind of receded. You know what I mean? And God is not going to be walking around a garden talking to anybody, <laughs> it, right? It, by Deuteronomy, that they're, they're, and so that, that it's this collective historical experience of tragedy um, that has, and and you know, just the evolution of Jewish civilization that that brings it to a different um, understanding of monotheism and and what it means. All right, let's let's look at eight. Somebody start reading. Faithfully observe. Yes. 
You shall faithfully observe all the instructions that I enjoin upon you today, <clears throat> that you may thrive and increase and be able to possess the land that Adonai promised on oath to your fathers. Remember the long way that your God, Adonai, has made you travel in the wilderness <coughs> these past 40 years in order to test by your hardships to learn what was in your hearts, whether you would keep the divine commandments or not. God subjected you to the hardship of hunger and then gave you manna to eat, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, in order to teach you that a human being does not live on bread alone, but that one may live on anything that Adonai decrees. The clothing upon you did not wear out, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. Bear in mind that your God, Adonai, disciplines you just as a householder disciplines his son. Therefore, keep the commandments of your God, Adonai, walk in God's ways, and show reverence. Walk. Okay, so, uh, I have a question about verse 2. Okay. Let's go. So we're getting the promise of when, when we keep the instruction of the mitzvah, right? Hayom tishmarun. When you when you observe it, when you guard it, when you keep it, you will thrive and increase and be able to possess the land that God promised on oath to your fathers. If this is post-exilic, what is this saying? They didn't do it. They didn't do it. That's why they were not able to possess the land, right? This is a lot of the literary indications to scholars that this is post-exile, that their possession of the land is dependent on keeping the laws, and that if you don't, that, you know, if you don't behave in the ways that are just and equitable and compassionate and righteous, then you will be dispossessed. Because how else does one explain an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God and you being kicked out of the land? I have a question about the all-knowing because verse 2 says uh, that he might test you by hardships to learn what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not, which implies that God didn't know what the people were going to do. God forbid. That God, that God was not all-knowing and God that there forbid. was free will. Chas v'shalom. Those are two different things. Ah, you're conflating two different things. That God doesn't know what we're going to do, chas v'shalom. The rabbis would say, God forbid. Of course God knows everything. Of course God, God is omniscient. Of course. God knows what we're going to do and created us with free will. If I give my child the choice between broccoli and a Snickers bar, I know what my child is going to choose. It doesn't mean I chose for her when she chooses a Snickers bar. But at least the English here says that God would learn what was in your your heart. Which kind of implies didn't know. The the place we get the most rabbinic commentary around this idea is the testing of Avraham. God Nisa Mm -hmm. tested Avraham. What, what, God doesn't know? God needs a test to know if Abraham is... So this is where the commentaries go crazy with what does it mean that God tested? And now and it says, now that I know, you would not withhold your son from me. God forbid God didn't know something. 
Um, clearly, there are impulses within our literary tradition that doesn't mind God not knowing something. The later tradition is very clear that absolutely cannot, God forbid, possibly be the case. Right? So all of this kind of you know, explanation of what it means when it says that I might know what was in your heart. Meaning, of course I know, says God, you need to know. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to choose for yourself what's going to be. Because that's necessary for you and your development. And that you have to own those choices. So here comes a recollection of the time in the desert. So it was hard, this time in the desert. It seems to be a time of forging a people. You know, you think of the, you know, what is that image always of the iron going into the, what's it called? You forge, you forge iron? Like, yeah, like you, you know, it has to be in hot water to be shaped and molded and to come out hard and strong and ready as a people to, you know, to, air quotes, conquer the land. So in that experience, though, God, yes, subjected you to the hardship of hunger and gave you manna. Why didn't God just provide food in the desert? Why not just make miraculous rain happen and crops grow? Why God subjected you to hunger on purpose and gave you manna? The answer is right here. It's a test. What's the answer? It's not a, this one's not a test. <laughs> well, that you can, that you can survive on anything God decides you can survive on. If... If God had brought rain miraculously in the desert and made crops bloom and they just harvested their fields, that's how we always survive. We eat. But if there's absolutely nothing to eat and there's no crops and there's no anything and this stuff falls from the sky just enough every single day and provides all the complete packaged nutrition that (laughs) one needs in order to survive, that must be God. So you will learn, you should learn that human beings do not live by food alone. Rather, they can live by anything that God decides they can live by. Yes? Which is normally not the way this verse is Correct, which is why we're visiting it here, right? Um, so, so, ki lo al halechem levado adam, not on bread by itself, does a human being live? Ki Adonai Adam. But rather by everything that comes out of the mouth of God does a human being live. So that doesn't even say mana. Mana's the example that they're using here, but mana's just an example. It's not the only thing is, is what it said, right? That we live from what comes out of, I love this image, what comes out of the mouth of God. So for me, we, we generally think, okay, that means speech. But, but remember the creation of Adam. We're, we're getting the word Adam here. How was, what happened for Adam? Adam gets created and then what? Which snore do you want? <laughs> Reuben, I love you. You just made my rabbinate. He asks, which version do you want? Because 
we know as a learning community that there are two stories of creation. Oh, Ruben, you make me so proud. So what did you say, Sarah? <laughs> Adam is formed, and then what happens? Eve is made from... Before Eve, Adam gets made out of clay, out of earth, and then what? Now it's just a thing. It's a thing. God breathes, this God breathes a nishama into Adam. So for me, when I think of this verse, that not by food alone do human beings live, but by everything that comes out of the mouth of God, I don't tend to think speech. I tend to think the animation of Adam by the breath of God. That there, there is nurture. There is, there is connection. There is a sharing of who God is essentially with Adam that is what turns Adam into a living, sentient, feeling creature. It's the non-material. Not the food. Yeah, but it's the non-material. The non-material aspects of nurturance, of relationship, of somebody giving us literally a part of themselves that's not physical. I mean, physical caring is part of it, but right that that's truly how we live. You might survive on something else, but it is everything that comes from the mouth of the universe that that is truly how we live. That is how we are sustained. The flip side of that is death. At the moment of death, the body continues to exist, but something is gone. Is now gone. Something's gone. And the body will return to what it was and... That other becomes, as it always has been, part of the breath of the divine. The clothes upon you did not wear out, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. It was a miraculous time where God cared for you and renewed everything about you. All the time. As hard as it was, God was also there Loving you. Remember that that footprint story? You know, the guy images his life, and there's two sets of footprints, his and God's. And then there were hard times in his life, and he remembers just he just he sees just one set of footprints. And he says, How come you abandoned me during the hard times in my life? And there's only one set of footprints. You were here, like meaning where's yours? And God answers, Those were the times I carried you. <laughs> so this was a time of hardship, yes, and that was the time of intimacy. That's the time God carried us, clothed us, fed us, made sure our diaper rash didn't get too bad, right? Like your feet didn't swell. You're walking on your feet all the time, and your feet didn't swell, right? God took care of us physically. It seems so such a small detail. Does it happen? You know, your feet, you know, your elbow didn't hurt. <laughs> Well, they're do walking. They no, but I mean, do they? I guess your feet could swell, but did they make? Did they make anything particular? The rabbis of the feet swelling or not? Swelling? So, because the, the idea is journeying. You know what could happen when you're journeying that long? So is that you your walk, feet? Right. Your feet would get tired and swell, and right, that it would be hard to walk. But God took care of that. There's this wonderful midrash. I don't know what it's about. I don't know why it just came to mind. It's crazy. The rabbis are a little crazy sometimes in the in the midrash. Um, which is also really fun. Um, but there's a midrash that 
that Miriam, that Moshe's mother, Tzipor, no, that's his wife, his yeah. mother, Yocheved's sandals wore out. And Moshe placed his hands under her feet and that she walked on his hands for the rest of the journey. <laughs> okay, anyway, I don't know, random. Okay, totally, sorry, totally rabbinic randomness. Um, so bear in mind that Adonai, your God, disciplines you just as a person disciplines their child. Therefore, keep the commandments of Adonai, your God, walk in God's ways, and be in awe of God, and behave as if you truly are in awe of God. I can substitute Jewish community for that role of God, and it works. Say more. Beautifully. Say more. When I was getting ready to go to college and didn't have clothes, my high school counselor got in touch with a social worker in the Jewish community who called me in and gave me $200, which bought me a complete wardrobe for going away to school. Now you could say it came from God. Or you can say the Jewish community blessed me. And how I might say it to, to combine them is people in the Jewish community lived into the call of the power that makes for compassion and empathy and generosity. Right. They lived in line with the what that would call them to do, and they knew it was their responsibility to provide clothes. For a member of their community. You shall clothe the naked. You shall feed the hungry. You shall protect the widow and the orphan. Right? That we are called into responsibility for one another when we live in line with that force that we call godliness. And so you experienced, you know, I mean, that's how I talk about it. Because, because I want to sacralize it. Does, does that make sense? I use God language because I feel like it's bigger than people did the right thing. It, it's bigger than that when we really behave that way all the time that's holy stuff last year the KI raised 80,000 pounds of food and that's a community thing at our highest holy days calling ourselves into relationship with that force in this world that we might call God or behavior that is godly is more how Shulweiss would talk about it um, would call us to make sure we don't we don't schlep to shul without at least one bag of food for those who don't have what we have. Isn't that a lot of the message of the prophets? Oh, that's Where, all they you do. Know, Isaiah saying, uh, quoting God, is saying, I, you know, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Stop this already, or Mika. Stop so- with the empty ritual. I don't I don't care about your shofar blasts mm-hmm. if people in your community are hungry. How is that Rosh Hashanah? How is that you living as an ethical nation when people are hungry? I think about you know how many forty thousand foster kids in LA alone who don't have homes, who don't have permanent homes, and we're going to go to shul and say, "Bless us for a good year." The prophets would have a lot to say about that, and the prophets were not popular. Let's be clear. Like, yeah. 
Well, I was just at a rabbinic seminar. The Board of Rabbis has a, a seminar for rabbis before the High Holy Days, and Rabbi Renner and I attended with 150 other rabbis and rabbinical students. And um, and the, te- the teacher, Rabbi Gordon Tucker, talked about the role of the prophet, that we as rabbis are sometimes called to be prophets, and prophets are not popular. They do not say things people want to hear. <laughs> right? It's... And that the tension of that, you know, of what does it mean to say, great, you're all here, we're all here, Rosh Hashanah, and meanwhile, right in our backyard, X, Y, and Z is happening. Really? This is acceptable to us? How is this acceptable? Right, so it's like, who wants to come to Shul to hear that? So this is not popular. This text was not popular even in its time. Right, this was not a beloved text. This was... a a revolution to try and correct behavior that was normative and that this school of thought saw as wrong in these ways. We might might have had a different criticism of those times. But the, the leadership of the time saw these to be the issues and these to be the problems. So let's go to that, because I think this really resonates for our time. I love the way, Sarah, you made this other one resonate. Jump to verse 11. So verse 7 goes through, God is bringing you to a good land with streams and springs and fountains, right? In the ancient Near East, those are critical. That's, that's luxury, right? Because then it's going to be a land that grows wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, olive trees, and date honey, right? A land where you eat food without stint, where you lack nothing, whose rocks are iron. Why is iron important? This is the Iron Age. Make stuff. This is the Iron Age. This is your weapons. You will be able to defend yourselves. Right? When you have eaten your fill, give thanks to Adonai. Let's look at verse 10. When you have eaten your fill, give thanks to Adonai your God for the good land which God has given you. The rabbis brilliantly purposefully misread this line. They read it not when you have eaten your fill ve'achalta v'savata and you are sated ve'achalta v'savata uverachta right? Um, then uh, when you've eaten your fill and get and are sated and give thanks to the God to God for the land He has given you, the rabbis say rather this is a commandment. This is a law. God just directly gave us a law, and that law is you must bench after you eat. Birkat Amazon. When you eat and you are sated, uverachta, you will bless. Meaning you shall bless. Don't we we bless before we eat? Ah, so here comes here comes the thing. We say a bracha. Before we eat anything, where's the big blessing? After. Why after? Why ve'achalta v'savata uverachta? Why is ve'achalta after being sated? Look at verse 11. Take care. Lest you forget that Adonai your, lest you forget Adonai your God and fail to keep God's commandments and rules and laws, which I enjoin upon you to this day, to this day when you have eaten your fill, and have built fine houses to live in, people in the Palisades. And your herds and flocks and BMWs have multiplied. 
and your silver and gold and portfolios have increased and everything you own, rental properties, slumlords, has prospered, beware, lest your heart grow haughty and you forget Adonai, your God, who freed you from the land of Egypt. You You were worth nothing. You slaves, you were nothing. Who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its seraph serpents and scorpions, a parcel who fed you, who took care of you. Yes? Verse 17. Lest you forget all that and say to yourselves, my own power and the might of my own hand have won this wealth for me. Remember that it is Adonai, your God, who gives you the power to get wealth in fulfillment of the covenant that God made on oath with your fathers, as is still the case. Do not think for one second you earned it. You're not such a big shot. You're not such a big shot. You were nothing. I took care of you, and I brought you to this place, and I have given you resources that you may use and enjoy justly remembering where it comes from. Don't you get haughty and think by my own koyach and my talent and my brains and my innovation did I come up with the Mac computer. You have been given the ability to do all of that by me and the resources to do it. Therefore, you must act justly in regards to them. That's why it says, ve'achalta, because the danger comes after you have eaten and are sated. When you have all that you want, I can go to the grocery store right now and buy anything in it. Think about that. I can go to Ralph's and buy anything in Ralph's. Who in this world has that opportunity? Not many people. And then I can drive in my air-conditioned Lexus to my air-conditioned lovely townhome and eat anything tonight for dinner that I want. That's when the danger happens. When, when our fine houses and our fine cars and our fine lives, you know, with all eating everything we want whenever we want, that's when it becomes really dangerous. And that's why, uve rachta, you shall bless. This passage and your interpretation of it should be sent to every senator or House per Congress person who voted to cut food stamps. Amen, sister. Amen, sister Sarah. Cutting food stamps? Try to live on $2 a day and feed a family on food stamps. And you're going to cut them? But you got to cut somewhere. <laughs> so let's cut right. Ruben's right. We, we got to cut somewhere. Let's cut food for the poorest among us. That's that sounds like a good place. It's their fault. They're poor. Of course, it's their fault. They're poor. Absolutely, because it's by our own koyach that we're wealthy. It's because we're smarter and more talented and work harder. So of course, it's their fault. They're poor. Right. That's exactly what Torah is saying. Is that's where people who are wealthy tend to go. We're sending you to Congress. Thank you, Mickey. Please, God forbid, this, don't send this, me to Congress. Getting to practice mm-hmm. in terms of what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. We've discussed this here at the synagogue. Really, if we as a synagogue want to be educational, 
we need to be able to provide our people with some way of doing this mitzvah, of being thankful after this. Pass out your sheet, please. Oh, is that what this is? (laughs) Every now and then. Exactly, okay. Every now and then, I get it right. You totally always get it right. (laughs) Amen. So what I'm passing out to you, look on the far left box on the top, and what do you see? Ve'achalta v'savata uverachta. You will eat, you will be sated, and you shall bless. This is part of the benching. This is part of the Birkat Amazon, the thing we say after a meal. On the right, you see, because Reuben is absolutely correct, you see all of the brachot for before we eat. Right? We are to give thanks. And the rabbis say we're supposed to say a bracha over everything we put in our mouths. So you don't just say a hamotzi, God forbid. You sit down, and when you eat the broccoli, you say bore priyadama. And when you move to the potato, bore priyadama. The soup, shakoni yebitvaro. That every new, everything at that meal that's different, that goes in your mouth, the first time you take a bite, you say a bracha over it. So like when Eliana was little, you know, you want a banana? Okay, we open the banana. Ah, Baruch Ata Adonai Elohim. Right? Where does it come from? It comes from a tree. Then we're going to say Bore Puri Ha Eitz. So the, the, the discipline is we never consume without a bracha. We never eat until we have given thanks that we have this thing to eat. And we, we mention where it comes from so that we don't forget it doesn't just drop from the sky. Right? There was a lot of work that went into cultivating bananas. You know how much work goes into bananas? They should cost like $50 a bunch. So much work goes into bananas and getting them here unbruised. <laughs> so, um, so we say a bracha to be mindful, to be grateful for everything that we eat. Mm-hmm. Is this translation from the Reconstructionist movement? Because I remember growing up and it saying, thank you, Adonai, our God, for providing us the bread, for giving us this. No? Uh-uh. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz literally means hamotzi, who brings out lechem, bread, min haaretz, from the ground. Okay. Does God bring forth bread from the ground? What comes out of the ground, Bread. Wheat. So why do we say he brings forth lechem? What are we blessing? I love this interpretation. I'm setting y'all up. Um, (laughs) We're really partners. We're blessing the partnership. God brings forth wheat, and we work that wheat into bread. We say bore pariha gafen, right? So who, who, right? We over wine. We don't say it over, you know, we don't lift grape, a bunch of grapes up at Kiddush and say, Bore Hagafen, who creates the fruit of the vine. We say, who creates the fruit of the vine and hold up? Partnership. We make the wine out of the grapes that God provides. We make the bread out of the wheat that God provides. So we're always blessing the partnership between humanity and that force of life in this world that makes for these wonderful things. All right, so... So part of the benching is this, is this quote from our Torah text. So what I brought you is some stuff you might not find somewhere else. You can find the traditional benching anywhere. What you might not find is some of the more 
creative and fun and wonderful practices that are happening in Jewish communities all over, including at my seminary, including at camp, including at adult retreat centers. And it's two of the more popular ones right now are here. On the left is Ve'achalta Visavata, our verse, and Hannah Tiferet Siegel's version of this. So when we're at camp, this is how we bench. Ready? Ve'achalta Visavata. Uverachta, Berhalta, Besavata, Uverachta. We ate when we were hungry, and now we're satisfied. We thank the source of blessing for all that she provides. Verhalta, Besavata. We usually skip to the last verse. We share in a vision of wholeness and release where every child is nourished and we all live in peace. That is the benching at many a Jewish uh, place, progressive Jewish places around the country. Um, the other one is one written by our beloved teacher, Rabbi Shefa Gold, like who we learn from a lot in this room. Uh, and if you look, uh, it's the Brich Rachamana. You see that little box? In the Talmud, there's a discussion. If you're on a journey and you get off your donkey or your horse and you make lunch with your friend and you're making the lovely meal together and you said the brachot and now it's time to bench, but you see robbers coming... Uh, must you bench the entire benching, right? Because pikuach nefesh, saving a life, is more important usually than anything else. So what are you supposed to do? Here come robbers, but you've had bread. you got a, you got a bench. And so there's this huge discussion about, do you have to say the whole thing? And one of the rabbis in the Talmud says, no, actually you don't. All you have to, the, the practice of this rabbi, he made a sandwich and it was time that he had, he had to quickly go. And so he said, this is Aramaic, right? The Talmud is, is written in Aramaic. Brich Rachamana, which in Hebrew would be Baruch, you know, blessed be, Harachaman, the merciful one. Malka de Alma, which is in Hebrew, Melech Ha'olam. <coughs> Mare, meaning master, Adon, Dehai Pita, of this Pita of this bread. That's all you have to say. You're yotze from the obligation to bench, and you can get on your horse and run. Of course, that was the minority opinion. That was not the opinion of the majority. So, But in Talmud, the minority opinion is always recorded, thus giving generations later a rabbi like Rabbi Shefa Gold the opportunity to write a benching based on that verse of Torah. And that will be the majority. <laughs> and now it's the majority in progressive Jewish uh, life. And it's a round. So we sing it as a round. And so it goes like this. Brihrahamana <laughs> 
You are the source of life for all that is, and your blessing flows through me. You are the source of life for all that is, and your blessing flows through me. Brichrachamana malkadeama mare dehai pita. Brichrachamana malkadeama mare dehai pita. You are the source of life for all that is, and your blessing flows through me. You are the source of life for all that is, and your blessing flows through me. So those parts get sung against each other. So in a big dining hall, in the Chara Ochel at camp, we get two parts going, and it is just, it's really, really, really lovely, really beautiful. So I offer you uh, these these new benchings, and if you turn it over, some exploration, of the relationship between uh, us and food as represented by our tradition uh, and some thoughts um, you know, about food and newer thoughts, things like echo kashrut. What does it mean to have a reinterpretation of kashrut that is really based in our values about protecting the planet? Should styrofoam be kosher, right? The folks who really are involved in eco kashrut say styrofoam is trafe. Anything that is produced by unfair labor practices is trafe. Anything that destroys the planet is trafe. And uh, there are folks in our progressive Jewish communities working on you know what a heksher is. A heksher is the stamp that makes something kasher. Heksher, right, from kasher. So that heksher is the stamp that means it is kasher to eat. And there are people in our communities working on a heksher tzedek a hexer of justice so that people can know that everything that has that hexer on it has been produced by fair labor standards and will not cause, you know, terrible things to happen to the planet or to us uh, and that it is about justice. And um, so many of us are pushing for that to be... um, You can Google hexer tzedek. And, and it'll tell you, I'm not sure what, what the name of the organ, it may be Heksher Tzedek, I'm not sure, you know, but, um, but it's, a, it's a push, you know, it's, and so lots of us are, would love to see a Heksher Tzedek, right? You know, some of us buy fair trade, so it would be a similar thing to fair trade, except it would be from a Jewish values perspective. Years ago, we wrote an article for Reconstructions magazine about this very subject, and uh, we did, we have one negative that that's not kosher. Kosher is, you know, the literal form. Mm-hmm. They just didn't get it. And that's, that's actually one of the basic teachings of Judaism. So kind of expanding, so I would agree. It's not kashrut. It's an expansion of the practice of applying certain rules to what we consume and what we don't. And the, law, the laws of kashrut, as we have them traditionally, for me, are informative because it means I eat as a Jew wherever I go. I express solidarity with my people by not eating pork, by not eating shellfish, 
It's not because it's wrong or bad. I'm a good reconstructionist that way. Um, I don't eat it because it's a way for me to positively identify with my people and their history of doing this, to positively identify Jewishly, to impose some spiritual random self-discipline, right? Pork is fine. We just don't eat it. Shellfish is fine. We just say no. And it's a good thing to have some discipline where you just say no, because the danger is when you get to eat anything you want and there's no thoughtfulness around it, you'll think it's by my own power. Did I come to all this wealth? So, uh, so, so I agree that that is the traditional um, observance of kashrut, and I'm fully supportive of expanding what kinds of rules we want to impose on ourselves and our community about what we consume and what we don't. And, you know, the coffee I drink, the children of the coffee picker should have shoes and a school in their village. I just feel like that is a wonderful way to expand uh, kashrut. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.